You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Artificial intelligence is remaking marketing as we speak. And if you're a marketer, you can either get up to speed or get left behind. The choice is yours and really, it's a no-brainer. Join Jeff Livingston and Greg Verdino as they explore the latest AI news, trends, tools, and ideas that are creating the future of marketing today. This is No Brainer, an AI podcast for marketers. Oh, and just in case you're wondering, yes, I am an AI. Take it away, Jeff and Greg. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the No Brainer podcast. I'm Jeff Livingston, and I am joined by my esteemed colleague, Greg Verdino. Hey, Greg. Hello, Jeff. How are you today? Very good. Uh, Before we get into it, I just want to make sure we get through all of our No Brainer commercials. Uh, We have this podcast basically to go through the AI news, trends, tools, and ideas that are really coming to the fore uh, and creating the future of marketing. And I think with uh, Greg and I, we're both learning at the same time as everybody else. Maybe we're a few weeks ahead of you, so uh, you could come along on this journey with us. So with that, Greg, I know you just had a vacation. Are you feeling rested and ready to get into the throng of AI news that seems to evolve every week? I I was feeling rested up until the point that my flight got canceled and rescheduled for Easter morning. And then we flew in. We got to uh, LaGuardia Airport, or as we like to call it here in New York, La Garbage. Um, And uh, (laughs) we we get in our Uber. We're on our way home. And uh, the Uber driver jumps over the HOV divider um, and gets pulled over by a cop. Um, And uh, so it was an interesting ride home and it kind of took some of that vacation warmth and fuzziness uh, away pretty quickly. It was like, don't jolt right back into reality. But here we are. <laughs> I wonder if uh, Uber's Wazebot reported him for that. You know, it could be. It could be. I, I got a notification. I didn't I didn't report the driver. I'm like, what am I going to do? Make like bad words like this guy's yeah, life. It's hard for right? us, right? Um, you know, so I just kind of kept quiet. But I did get a notification the next day that um, they were reversing the charge on my card. So <laughs> <there you go. laughs> they knew. They knew. Well, we do have a. AI will always get you in trouble. Actually, we had an interesting one with Grubhub that was similar to that, where there was a miss delivery of a dinner and we actually got twice the amount of food and we got it for free so we were happy i'm sure the other jeff literally spelled it the same way as me from the same restaurant was really pissed off because we also ordered vegetarian (laughs) (laughs) yeah lots of room for improvement and uh you know it just goes to show you human error still has uh yeah that's why we're getting into the ai technologies i think So with that, I mean, let's get into it. We have a really kind of a thick episode. We're getting into ethical AI. You've been tracking this a little bit more than I have, although I I am actually working on a policy for the company. So it's definitely timely for me as well. Um, Why don't you tee us up and uh, get into the, the bevy of news that's kind of unfolded since our last episode where we kind of half casually referenced that big tech letter, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, the first thing that jumped out at me um, was, uh, you know, and I was away trying not to pay any attention to any of this stuff. But, uh, you know, so imagine, Jeff, that you are a... Um, a, uh, a, a law professor um, and one of your colleague law professors and I know you tend to you know you're a very smart dude uh, maybe not law smart but smart right but anyway imagine you know you get a phone call or an email one day and one of your fellow law professors is like hey uh, I, I saw this troubling information apparently you were on some kind of a student trip a few years ago um, and you were accused of harassing one of the female students um, and you go well, well no, no 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 that never happened where where do you read this and he goes well apparently there was a Washington Post article about it back in 2018 it's like well no no that doesn't make any sense are you sure about this well yeah because I, I found out about it through chat GPT right so this of course is a real story right this happened last week the George Washington law professor, Jonathan Turley, um, who's also a media commentator. More people might know him from that. Um, right. Was essentially accused by ChatGPT, right? It, it, it hallucinated this story. It's like a never, right? Right? Like the trip yeah. never happened. The incident never happened. Washington Post never published the article. But when prompted for a source for the news, um, ChatGPT disclosed you know, a Washington Post article from 2018. Um, Washington Post looked into it. Of course, they you know confirmed there was no such article. This incident didn't happen as far as they know. Um, and did some of their own checking. And they actually got Bing to reproduce the story and credit Chad GPT as the source. So now you get this weird Ooh. circular shit, right? You sourcing from bots, right? So it's this interesting thing where not only are we seeing um, generative AI invent facts, right, the incident that happened, but when prodded or prompted to say, well, where are you hearing this from? They're inventing the sources, right? And they're doing it horrible, way, right? And it's a, uh, they're doing it in a way that's believable, right? Because they say, oh, it was this article written by this reporter in this publication on that date. And of course, you know, it's not lying, right? It doesn't know true from false, right? It's right. just that article may have been used, or or a Washington Post article may have been used to source some other part of the document. So it just boggles it all up, right? Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, lots of publications are seeing this kind of thing. Around the same time, the Guardian, the Guardian right, right. You know, they published a uh, uh, an op-ed. Their digital editor essentially published an op-ed. You know, talking about how the publication had recently received two different 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 inquiries from two different researchers, just trying to validate stories. And again, it was a specific story title written by a reporter with a date source to the Guardian, neither story existed. So media really, you know, need, need to start, well, media themselves need to start thinking about how do they use these tools, but also how do they respond to inquiries like these? Um, and what kind of advice do they give people who are fact-checking against their content um, about how to differentiate between true, false, uh, reliable, unreliable? It's, it's, it's making for a really interesting world for anybody that yeah. Tool as an assistant. Yeah, it's almost like it's making a great case for blockchain authentication of everything, you know, and 
Uh, we'll see whether or not that's a, a solution. I don't know why I said that, but it just popped in my head. Like, great, let's just go from AI to blockchain, and maybe we could do both at the same time, right? No, uh, yeah, great. The blockchain podcast for yeah, <laughs> The blockchain podcast, boy. <laughs> I, there are a lot of people in our business would do that, but <laughs> um, anyway, we're really digressing here. You know, Greg, I actually have a similar story where I did a vanity search on ChatGPT, and it told me that I wrote have published a photo book called The District. And I'm like, no, no, I never did that. Now, I didn't like ruin it. I just kind of laughed because like, who am I? I'm just some like punk in Philly, from Philly that lives in DC that like shoots a camera now and then. So it was, it was kind of cute, you know what I mean? But it's not cute when it's harmful and it's dangerous to individuals. And so this gets into the whole, the whole privacy issue and the harm issue and whether or not we're really addressing the uh, immediate types of challenges that this AI is really kind of producing, or at least the large language model that's known as GPT is creating right now. And I think uh, you were talking about uh, the Emily Bender article, which kind of gets into some of that, and how that kind of reversed the, the tech letter criticism from all the CEOs. Yeah, I mean, the you know, for anyone that hasn't been following all the hubbub around it, you know, there was that letter a few weeks back now. Um, from um, it was at the Future of Life Institute, which apparently is a problematic institute anyway. So it's like whole longevity movement. It's a whole bunch of like old white dudes. Um, Elon Musk in it? Oh no. Elon Musk is involved with it somehow, I suppose. Um, but um, you know that letter kind of painted a picture of essentially artificial general intelligence and the risks that might exist should that become a reality should an agi go rogue what are the risks to humanity that kind of crap um which are not insignificant issues but they're still kind of science fiction when you um consider what is you know sort of what the risks are today the practical real risks that are happening today that was really the the emily bender argument was you've got all these tech bros including Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak and the CEO of Stability AI and a whole bunch of others signing this letter um, which called for a pause on AI research and deployment, uh, which is probably not realistic regardless, but um, kind of focused on these far future scenarios as opposed to saying more rightly so, hey look, right now there are bias issues, there are issues around the transparency and the data, there are issues around how these models are trained, there are issues around how they might be used right now for disinformation. And um, you know that was kind of Dr. Bender's criticism of the letter was not how could you possibly call for a pause. It was how can you call for a pause on the basis of some future sci-fi scenario. But obviously, as you know, and I know you've been seeing a lot of these things too, there are all of these now-term risks and issues and biases and challenges that um, you know we have some fundamental questions we need to think about. Who is going to regulate or at least put guardrails around AI. Can we trust the tech industry to do it itself? Right? Can we, you know, as as users, whether we're marketers or whatever else, business strategists or whatever, do we need to take the mantle? Do we wait for our governments? Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing? I know you've been following that space as well. 
Yeah, no, it's very interesting. I mean, of course, the Biden administration put out its AI Bill of Rights last November, and uh, I think we're going to talk about Italy banning it, and then the EU has a privacy bill related to AI that's up right now as well. But I, I really think that when it comes down to it, we know that technology companies aren't going to do the right thing. I mean, witness Microsoft firing its entire ethical group, right? The folks that are trying to make sure that the company uses AI in an ethical manner that doesn't harm people. Uh, so they fired those guys. And is it any wonder that they're so in bed with open AI and everything that's going on? And I, I don't want to demean people at Microsoft. I know they're working hard and they're trying to put out a great solution. You know, nobody's trying to mess things up. But I, I do think that there's this conscientious kind of a guardrail approach that we need to create kind of like uh, Isaac Asimov's three laws of robotics, which prevented robots from, in the science fiction world from uh, harming human beings. Uh, and it's interesting to see that like some of the charges being led by uh, journalists banning ChatGPT articles. I've seen a couple of instances of that. Uh, one publication where we submitted an article that was generated by AI, but prompted by us with all of our messages, and they have uh, they rejected it outright based on a, a screening bot that detected the ChatGPT, and we were forthright. We noted it on the bottom of the article, and then we had another person, uh, you know, maybe one third of their article was rewritten by ChatGPT, and mm -hmm. and if you think about the way some people right, this may be a great benefit, right? This may actually make you better. You know, you might have great ideas, but you may not be able to communicate them well. This can make it right. better, right? Yeah, and, there, I mean, uh, there was a study not too long ago. We've seen a lot of studies, obviously, about, you know, how many jobs are we going to lose? But at the same, there was another study. Yeah, I don't, I don't um, buy that, right? Yeah, the whole impact study, right? Um, but, yeah. but um, you know, there was another study that um, gave, I believe it was actual chat GPT to a bunch of workers across an entire bell curve from like super competent writers, confident, you know, great with words, down to people who were just really not comfortable writing. And right. it improved performance across the board, but the biggest impacts were at the lower end of that bell curve where the people who were not confident, competent writers um, saw the largest gains in terms of both performance and job satisfaction. You know, so clearly there are great opportunities here. You know, for um, you know for people who don't have that that innate skill set, right? Might have great ideas, but but can't get them out. A hundred percent, and that's the promise of the technology, right? And even if you don't have time, but you want to summarize something or do something like that, I mean, I find I even use it for my own stuff. Like I, I will literally write a blog and throw it in there and say, "Proof this," you know. And it's yeah. different than I like Grammarly better still, but it, it, it does do a job. I like the scoring on Grammarly. You know, I'm a total like competitive jack. Uh, you know, never mind. I'm not going to say that. We're going to try to keep it PG today. But, you know, I love Grammarly in the way you can get a higher score based on the level of your text. You know, that's very helpful. But I think you remember me from 15 years ago. And if I didn't put out a blog with at least eight typos in it, with people from all over the PR industry just busting my chops on every typo, a wrongly placed Oxford comma, I mean, it was horrible, right? I mean, Grammarly has saved me. It's made me a much better writer. I've always been an ideas guy. And, and I know there's a lot of other people like me, you know? And so I think that's the great use case. But anyway, long story short, this guy's article got kind of thrown back and say like, hey, these pieces where you had ChatGPT kind of clean it up, 
unclean it up or make it your own. Like just rewrite those. We don't want to have any kind of robotic text on our site. And then we had, uh, I'll just say, a vendor, a well-known company, say to us like, "Hey, no ChatGPT uh, provided uh, content for us." And you know, I think that that's indicative of this kind of whiplash where people are saying, "No, we don't want this. We don't trust it." Uh, and more importantly, Greg, I think what the real message is, we don't trust you to source the information. We don't trust you if you're using this to send it to us to go through to that website and make sure that, uh, what was the guy's name, John or whatever, you know, the guy from The Guardian, that that article is written about you or the Washington Post article, whatever it may be. Or they're not gonna check to see if Jeff Livingston put the, out that book called The District. And because they don't trust humans to finish the job, and I think they're right not to trust every single human to finish the job. I know a lot of people will. And not verify the sources and not guarantee the integrity of the data. They have to protect themselves. And yeah, so I and think I, that's where we're at. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And I think some of it really even comes down to, I mean, I think there are a number of things. I think because the tool, like a chat GPT, writes in such a convincing and confident human-like way, people who don't understand the underlying technology, and I'm not saying you must understand, you know, deeply understand machine learning and GPTs and LLMs and right, but who don't fundamentally understand the you know the the basics of the technology, I think maybe give the technology too much credit, right? And assume it's actually better or smarter, more intelligent than it actually is. And I think frankly the hype cycle and the way the technology companies themselves are marketing these tools. You know, you see a lot of these companies um, who are like, hey, this will write your marketing copy for you. Um, and people, unfortunately, you know, we're all, you know, we're, we've all been, you know, trained like Pavlov's dogs to marketing headlines and taglines and promise statements that if the brand says it, then it must be true, right? So, you know, we really need to be, uh, a phrase I like, and I, I saw somebody using this, was, you know, you know, try but don't trust, right? Um, you know, you absolutely have to be using these tools, experimenting with them, seeing what they're good at, what they're not good at, but you need to really take a lot of personal accountability for checking and double checking and really validating not just the quality of the output, but the veracity of the output. Yeah, 100%, and I think what we've been fortunate not to see is truly a harmful gaffe yet. But I imagine that's only a question of time, right? And so right. that's going to further hurt the curve. And I think it's just kind of like a, a big kind of compounding problem. Um, so, you know, the other thing, too, that's come up since we last talked, and then we should probably move into the deeper dialogue, is all the deep fakes that have occurred since Majority 5 came out. You know, with the Pope in a puffer jacket, which I kind of thought was awesome. But then also, I, I'm sorry, I don't want to get political, but the Donald Trump arrest photos, which... Right. Some of us may be cheering, some of us may be angry about. Um, it also caused Midjourney to preemptively ban images of Xi, the premier from China. And you know, this is a, an ongoing issue. And there's, you know, what people aren't talking about is the porn issue that's happening on these sites where uh, I was literally demoing uh, 
mid-journey to my team and uh, we literally started talking about in the description a rain shower and it banned the word shower you cannot use the word shower anymore and I can only imagine why right I mean people are just being dirt bags and right. using it for all sorts of reasons you can't talk about uh, female body and things like that and um, you know that's going to be problematic for mid-journey eventually because it's going to be so Disney-ified that they can't create content but you know like all these things with technology the bad guys are a step ahead of the good guys and the right. only step the good guys can do is ban you know just shut it off so that these guys can't do it yeah yeah and the you know when you think about you know, to use your uh, whether it's the the deep fake pornography issue or the Donald Trump example, you know the, these images have become you know prompted properly so photorealistic um, that to it's an amazing. average user who doesn't know what they're looking at or looking for or might be inclined to a specific belief set, good, bad, or otherwise, might see images like this, assume them to be true, spread those images, even unwittingly, right, not knowing that they are deep fake images, and this stuff really takes on a life of its own, and that's where it really becomes problematic. And that's, that's even assuming a scenario in which the parties may not be malicious, right? It might be an accident. What happens when you have a malicious party, right, who is able to create deep fake images or um, fictitious articles or whatever the case may be by the millions, right? And then what happens when you've got, who knows, thousands of articles that are written, um, that are falsely sourced, that are not true, et cetera, et cetera, that impact something like an election or impact a person personally, a human being personally, or, you know, you know, take the, you know, kind of take, take its toll on a business, you know, in terms of stock market and, you know, whatever, right? These things happen. And then you kind of start to feed it into the next version of the, of the large learn, uh, the, the large language model, right? You know, because yeah. you know, without the right kind of guardrails and, you know, sort of human supervision of those models, you know, that, that false information becomes part of the next training set. Now you have this sort of downward spiral and it just gets really, Really messed up, especially with like uh, Midjourney now producing text for images, and soon ChatGPT four will take images as prompts. So right. it's going to become intertwined in a way that we hadn't imagined. And I think you could probably imagine this as well. Sooner or later, Midjourney is going to produce an image that's like the spitting likeness of somebody else, and it's going to be somebody that's got enough power to complain about it, and it's going to be a problem because it'll be kind of like uh, when somebody uses somebody else's song by accident, you know, theoretically, um, and then they get sued for it, a la George Harrison. And uh, if that happens, you know, what are they going to do? They have, they have nothing to say. Even worse, they can't even guarantee that the training data didn't do it, right? Like they actually had him, and just the person had just spit it out. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's go into the bigger thing. Let's get into some of our questions from uh, the audience. What do you think? Yeah. So I mean, this is actually, I think, an interesting um, occasion for us because for the first time, we actually have some questions from the audience, and I guess that's a good reminder to kind of market our three of our listeners. All three of our <laughs> listeners have questions, um, and only one of them is a relative. Uh, but the <laughs> <laughs> but, 
But um, <laughs> but seriously though, um, anybody who is listening, um, and I think we do have more than three people, unless each of the three people listens a whole lot of times. But um, you know, we're obviously still relatively new, but we're starting to attract some listeners and some viewers. Um, if you do have questions, you know, I'll, I would encourage you to you know find either of us on LinkedIn. We're there all the time, or of course you can drop questions to hello at nobrainerpodcast.com. Um, so the first question that we got today um, on this topic of kind of fair use and ethical use and um, kind of how do you how do you control this stuff or, or at least make smarter decisions was from Susan Kuhn. I hope I'm saying her last name correctly. She is a marketing consultant. She's a digital marketing fractional exec. And her question is, is really how to stop what she's calling bad advice, such as you know, what happens when an AI draws shallow or off-the-mark conclusions? It's just thin. Or put another way, she wrote, how can AI know when the information it has been fed is incorrect or has been uh, discredited? And how? And then I guess that's kind of her first question. She has a second question, but let's, let's uh, start with that one, Jeff. So essentially, as I'm interpreting this, it's like, you know, how do you make sure the AI isn't giving you bad content, basically, either bad information or content that's so kind of patent cut and dry and surface level um, that it's not valuable? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it gets down to prompting, right? And prompting it well helps, at least I find it does, providing the sources I want it to use rather than the other way around. And I think that that's one of those preemptive things that you can do to prevent a crisis, right? right. Uh, I think the mistake happens, though, regardless of how you use it, whether you trust the AI to find the information or not. And that all depends on the training data. We all know what ChatGPT's training data is. You may be using a different generative AI text creator. Like, we have ones that are trained on industry-specific information, for example. And uh, uh, so if you trust it, you, you know, I know that one of the things that our analysts will do is they'll go out and, like, check the data. Right, they will check the data. I know when I write an article and I ask ChatGPT four for something and it spits out something that looks pretty good, I'll actually start Googling and sourcing it to make sure it's actually accurate. And I think that that's the difference between being um, perhaps uh, too reliant on the brands and what they're saying that they're going to deliver to you, and and being wise about how these tools may actually work. Right? Yeah, so I my, think that's my take. That. What do you think? I, I agree with you 100%. Just to kind of give an example, if I'm writing a piece, you know, something in, in terms of the prompting, if I'm writing a piece, I don't rely on ChatGPT to do all my research for me or any AI writer to do all my research for me. I might ask it, uh, you know, I might prompt it to kind of get some ideas and kind of see what it comes back with. Again, checking sources and whatnot. Uh, but if I'm using it as a research assistant even or as a writing assistant, you know, I might, you know, if I'm writing an article on, you know, PR, let's say, um, which I don't generally do, but as an example, you know, I might, as part of my prompt, I might say, you know, whatever, PR expert Jeff Livingston wrote a book called Welcome to the Fifth Estate, in which he argued blah, 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 blah. And then I will ask, I will provide it with a prompt and ask it to include a reference to that particular book making that particular point, right? So it's not as simple as, you know, hoping the AI comes back with good sources. Um, that might get better 
better over time, especially as you connect ChatGPT through plugins to the browser. Um, but still, I want to know that if I if, if, that if I have a point to make that's backed up by data or research or an author or whatever, I'm providing it with that as the input. Um, the other thing is, you know, what is the other half of what you said is that I tend to use it in the middle of a process in a lot of ways where I know what I want to write and I can prompt it to maybe do, give me a draft or to summarize some points or something like that, but I never rely on it to produce a finished product. Um, I always make sure that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've got, I guess, OCD or whatever. I micromanage, you know, the writing process. So I tend to even, I mean, I might write every, rewrite every single word that ChatGPT gives me. <laughs> Um, I don't know but, if that's a bad idea, right? <laughs> but, but, you know, but it might give me some inspiration or some connections I hadn't made or an idea I didn't think to include. And that kind of gets to Susan's, the second part of Susan's question, which I haven't read aloud yet, which is how do you develop a distinctive voice? Um, right. And I think the short, simple answer is... Um, that's still on you as the human writer. So ChatGPT will output something that's relatively dry and academic. And we've anyone who's played with it has seen what that looks like, you know, five paragraphs, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think it is still on you to make sure that that is written in your voice or your company's brand voice or whatever. Um, something I've tried as a trick is I've input my own writing. Cheat code alert. Cheat code right. alert. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like such a crypto bro now. Um, uh -oh. it, it's, I, um, it's sometimes I'll put in my own writing. I'll put in a blog post I wrote, and I will ask it to analyze the voice and tone. And it'll come right. back with an analysis. And if I, if I agree that it's analyzed my voice and tone correctly, I'll then say, great, rewrite that thing you just gave me in that voice and tone. And it still won't right. get it 100% right, but it might get it closer and save me a little bit of time. Yeah, I've done that where I've taken four or five of my articles, slapped the URLs in there and said, write something in, about this in the voice of those five articles. And it's actually gotten like 75, 80% there. Yeah, it's not yeah. bad. So that's a couple of, a couple of tips and tricks if you want to do that. Want to bring us into the next question, Jeff? Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, Cousin Andrew who actually shares the same birthday as me, Greg. Oh, very uh, nice. But also, <laughs> Andrew is a director of marketing at Momentum uh, Commerce. He's actually pretty good at, at this, and he's been around for a while. Uh, so Andrew asks, I'm interested in what's happening around hybrid approaches. Uh, marketers still produce original content themselves, like, for example, demo videos. Are there good examples of generative AI helping to sweeten or polish those assets? And I mean, I'll kick it over to you first. I definitely have some thoughts, but go for it, Greg. So it's an interesting question because he's asking for examples where it's been done well. And I think the short answer is, I'm sure there are many, but when it's done well, you know, as a, as a consumer, as a, uh, uh, a, an audience member for that content, you don't know it, right? Um, but I know from a practitioner perspective, the kind, and we've been talking already about these kinds of things, right? Where, um, you know, creating workflows where you're using a tool like ChatGPT or any other writing assistant, um, potentially as a brainstorm partner, potentially as a research assistant, but with the caveat that you need to really fact check, uh, potentially as a partner in drafting content. Um, 
but then making sure that you're doing the harder work, the stuff that requires that sort of human level of nuance um, is, you know, is, you know, the thing that's likely to, to result in this sort of hybrid human AI produced content that is actually good, that's consumable, that's entertaining, that's educational, um, that expresses a point of view, a perspective, has a voice and all of that. What are you thinking right. about that? I'm actually thinking about our bald brother of another mother, uh, Mitch Joel, who says he uses it all the time, right? He actually right. uses it all the time and he never says when he's using it, but he says anything you see from me, it, it's touched it in some way. And I no. think, you know, uh, and Mitch is a friend of the pod, obviously. Well, actually, he probably doesn't know about the pod yet, but he should be a friend of the pod. Um, and God damn you, Mitch. Anyway, no, we love you, Mitch. Don't be mad. <laughs> so all jokes aside, uh, I think what's happening with Mitch and his content is probably pretty normal right now. I think, you know, what we what we don't want to know is that yeah, that's obviously created by a bot, and that's right. where the mistakes happen, right? So, um, and I think Andrew's question actually speaks a lot to Adobe's ethical AI policy, and you know how basically AI is a co-pilot for the creator. So I like yeah. that ethos. Yeah. As a, yeah, as an ethos, and as a, I know other companies are using this co-pilot word. I think Microsoft is using it in some of their product language. It's it's the right nomenclature, right? This is you know you're still the pilot. You're in the seat. You got your hands on the yoke, um, but you know you've got somebody beside you to assist you, and you know you can kind of close your eyes for a couple of minutes, but you know, but but don't you know take a you know don't take a melatonin and doze off the whole ride, and assume the tool will do the job for you. Uh, what a weird analogy. Um, but yeah. um, I guess that's somebody who's been stuck on canceled flights. Um, but, um, you know, I think the other thing, and this is a Southwest way... Southwest flights. <laughs> no AI. But, that's the problem, man. <laughs> but, um, you know, this is something we do at the agency all the time where, you know, we create a lot of long form assets. We do a lot of research, you know, we do a lot of reports, you know, things that are kind of ebooks, white papers, research studies, things like that, you know, which are fairly substantial media assets. Um, and we might, you know, we might feed the key findings in and ask for summarization, or we might feed the bulk of the text in and say, create an executive summary. Uh, we use it a lot to inspire derivative content. Here's the report, or even here's the blog post, give me five tweets, three LinkedIn posts, um, and you know, uh, you know, some, some text to go with an Instagram image, let's say, right? You know, and again, back to even some of the things we were talking about on Susan's question, it's not a matter of taking those things verbatim as is and shoving them out into the world and hoping people don't catch that we're using AI, right? But it's about using those things as source material in what Andrew is calling a hybrid approach, right? So our, our material kind of reinterpreted into derivative stuff by an AI like a chat GPT plus um, and then kind of back into our hands where we you know they've done you know chat GPT has done some sweetening uh, we do a little bit of polish and you know kind of you know that kind of stuff and then now it's ready for the market so it's definitely helpful right. from a speed standpoint from an output standpoint production standpoint um, but we don't rely necessarily rely on it necessarily at this point in time to give us the quality that our clients expect, right? So that's yeah. still all on us. Right. 
So let's sum up a little bit on some of the things that we're talking about to kind of like at least start creating a, a policy or a process for your organization or at least for our own organizations and our own workflows, right? And it sounds like you and I are both on the same page with some of these. One, you have to check all the content, right? Like you always have to check any content produced by an AI. It's just important. And even the visual stuff, because I've made the mistake of publishing mid-journey images with six fingers. Yeah, it's not a good look. Um, the other thing too is uh, with AI writing assistance and specific facts, it's helpful to actually provide the source data. You know, be proactive and do the research where this thing can really help you, I believe, and where it helps me most in my work and where I'm, I'm kind of trying to spread this amongst the uh, marketing organization and larger teams is like, hey, if you provide it with the information, it's gonna actually give you a good result, like at least a pretty decent result that you can work from. It'll probably miss a few facts, it may restate a couple facts the wrong way, but that's our job is to finish it. So this can take you from the, you know, the, your own 20 yard line to the opposition's 40 yard line and you're, you're close, right? You're a lot closer and a lot faster than you would be. So it helps with that writer's block. Um, before you move and then, on to the next one, though, Jeff, yeah. uh, from a responsibility standpoint, we should say um, do not put your company's proprietary or undisclosed information into the public version of ChatGPT, including ChatGPT+. Um, there are no really firm guardrails around how that data might or might not get used. So I think your assumption at this point in time should be if you were using a tool that's free or close to free, you're not on the API you're not using a custom built tool that's using proprietary data sets for training to start with like the work your company does Jeff but let's say you're on chat GPT do not put any proprietary information in because that could become a part of the next generation's data set right and that could essentially mean you're leaking your information to the public Samsung has already caught a few instances for example of their engineers putting code base in <laughs> and that code base now theoretically is in the wild um, so right. um, you know so what we're saying put in your information uh, your sourcing your details your facts and ask chat GPT to kind of use that in writing a summary or writing a, a blog post or an article or whatever um, do be smart about the kinds of things you feel comfortable sharing saying hey use this real New York Times article is one thing saying hey use this thing for our upcoming investor report is another yeah i agree with that totally and it, you know don't be stupid is really what we're saying like and i know you know people that may have done this and you know you're saying like oh that guy's kind of crass and I, you know i'm not trying to uh, comment on what you've done in the past but now that we're becoming well known you know what the issues are you, you can't you yeah. can't source intellectual property in there. You know, you're giving it away. And anybody that thinks that ChatGPT in particular is not training its algorithm with this stuff, OpenAI, if you would, yeah. uh, they're, they're crazy. And when you give it to OpenAI, you're giving it to Microsoft. It's really that easy. And, uh, and I think there are a lot of tech companies that would get their hairs in shackles thinking about that. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, I think that, you know, this speaks to private implementations and the need to do that. If you're in a, in a larger enterprise that can afford to do that, do it. You know, like if you look at Microsoft Azure Cloud, you can get your own GPT-3 implementation pretty easily and set it up just like that. And so yeah, I think, uh, keep yeah, that like, in mind. I know one of the other news stories from the past week or two was the release of Bloomberg GPT, right? And I think that in a lot of ways 
is a sign of what we can expect to see in the future with large organizations, with the resources, with the data sets, um, with access to say Azure, or, you know, like they're running on the cloud and um, can plug into these models um, easily, can train on custom data, all this kind of stuff um, is, you know, you know, if you're a mom and pop, it's one thing, but if you're a Fortune 500, um, this is going to become more and more routine, right? Where you have your own 100%. LLM trained on your own data set that gives your people access to a much more secure and much more productive, um, you know, uh, GPT model to work off of. Right, and it's part of your larger data governance policy. Any organization that has a data governance policy is not going to like its data going out to ChatGPT or public LLM models. Um, just quickly try to wrap because I know we're going long today. This is such a heavy topic. Um, image sourcing, we can't use other people's likenesses without their permission. So I've seen organizations now that are actually starting to get full image licenses licenses that allow them to use those people's likeness in AI to repeat it, to create, recreate that person in different ways. So if somebody were to literally photograph your entire likeness in a 360 degree right. area, all of a sudden now you can use that in a different way. And if you're a consumer company, that's probably highly valuable to start thinking about licensing images that way. So yeah. you can re reuse that model and reuse that campaign in a different way. Yeah. So that's really important. I don't know who the advertiser is, so I guess it's not a good ad, but I, I mean, I just quickly read the article before we started uh, recording where there is a brand that's got kind of real Charles Barkley talking to young Charles Barkley, who's of course created through AI. Um, you know, they kind of having a conversation of like, you know, with his younger self. Um, so it's that kind of thing where now there's, you know, they're, you know, licensing or somehow compensating Charles Barkley for the use of these images of, you know, his himself as a 20 something let's say um you know so it's going to get interesting you know which then gets the round mound the rebound <laughs> no but then you know then you know there's a whole other conversation that we could have not now not today about you know kind of what does that mean you know, how do you ever know whether a spokesperson is artificially generated or augmented or whatever versus you know the actual you know being an actual person but that's a whole nother Topic. I, I should tell you about the time Howard Greenstein and I ran into Charles Barkley at South by Southwest. <laughs> Literally, dude, he's not much taller than you or me. Like, he's like 6'2", six 6'3", six but what was really funny about him was, because you know from Philly, I'm like, Charles, I love you so much. I ran into him. I'm like, God, I grew up watching you. It's like, oh, yeah, I still have a house in Philly with his <laughs> Alabama accent, right? I'm like, oh, that's cool. Do you know what my favorite Charles Barkley moment was? And he goes, no, tell me. And I'm like, well, that time you beat the shit out of Danny Age at the Spectrum, man. You just took him down. You're like, bam, bam, bam. He's like, oh, man, don't say that. Danny Age is my friend. We played together in Phoenix, you know. That's <laughs> like, oh, that shit. I'm sorry. That includes the uh, adult programming segment of <laughs> I, it, it took me 40 minutes to get there. You got to give me a little credit. All right. <laughs> Alec Goldman has a question. I want to get it. Uh, what is the responsibility of educators in ensuring that Gen Z and forward are learning how to use generative AI ethically as well as preparing them to train future generations of AI in an ethical manner? Will that sort of teaching become a large chunk of an educator's job description going forward? I, I have a take on this. I, I kind of think it's like, well, I don't think it is. I think it's going to be more of an educator's job to enforce the policy. I think there's going to be pretty heavy policy 
I just question whether or not that the enforcement mechanisms will be able to catch the really smart students that are able to get around the system. But what's your take on it? I mean, I think it, it's interesting. I mean, because this speaks to, I think, sort of the broader issue of whether we as a society, right, have an obligation to instill the right kinds of sort of digital literacy skills in the next generation, really the next generation of workers, you know, from the perspective of our podcast, since we're a business podcast. Um, I don't know nearly enough about education, um, although I guess I was a customer of the education system for many years. Um, but I do think that there is, whether it's a responsibility or something else, responsibility might be too strong a word, I think there is an opportunity uh, for educators to integrate these tools proactively into their systems. So there's the issue you're talking about, which was how do you police whether or not a kid uh, illicitly used any kind of AI writer, ChatGPT, um, to produce an essay that was a passable piece of work. Now, there are a lot of questions around whether an essay that a chatbot can write and that appears to be human was a was a worthwhile essay to write in the first place, right? Um, you know, are we really teaching our kids the right thing when a chatbot can churn out a rote five paragraphs in the traditional high school essay format? Is that still a skill that matters? But more importantly, I've seen some interesting examples, or I read one at least, of um, I believe it was a high school teacher um, who explicitly told his students to use ChatGPT and um, to, to draft um, their, their essays um, with the instruction that when they did that, they were required to provide a critical analysis of the essay as well. So let ChatGPT write the essay. Now go into that essay and tell me about its writing style. Was it compelling? Was the argument well structured? Were the facts correct? Were the you know et cetera et cetera et cetera? Um, and the grade, their grade was based on essentially how well they critiqued and how many of the errors they caught and how much fixing they. Did, right, so I think understanding that these tools will be part of. I mean, they're becoming part of the current generation's work, you know, work suite. Will absolutely be part of the future generation's work suite. So I think yes. things like that, you know, kind of, we can't turn a blind eye or put blinders on or shutters on and go, well, we don't know. It's not, you know, we can't, we can't figure out whether this is good or bad or otherwise. I think we have to assume it is what it is, um, right. and we have to start to teach people how to look at these things critically. It's all the stuff you and I were just talking about, right? You know, where you don't just pump in a prompt, get a thing out, stick it up on your company yeah. blog. You've got to be critical in terms of how you prompt, how you review, how you fact check, how you edit, how you re-edit, how you rewrite, where you cut, where you expand. Um, and I think as long as we're teaching the next generation of workers those kinds of skills, I think we're doing a good service to them. Yeah, it's generative AI literacy, really, you know, and that's what we're teaching them is how to understand the information that they're receiving and whether or not to yeah. digest it, accept it, pass it on. 
Um, and unfortunately, I think we know that we will see a lot of bad information, but I totally agree with you. And I love that teaching example. I mean, I keep trying to get my kid to use ChatGPT. They're like, no, it's stupid, man. This is life with a 12-year-old, right? No, ChatGPT is dumb. We all make fun of it at school, you know? Only old people like you, you boomer, use it. I'm not a boomer. Yes, you are, you know? So, I mean, but, oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So anyway, uh, we're, we're running long. I, I do want to kind of get into ethical AI policies. I feel like we should wrap it a little bit. I, it may be like we could do it briefer than we would, and if folks want more, we can do more. Uh, but I, you know, I think the major issues that I think of when building a, a, an AI policy, there are seven really key components that I'm starting to navigate or circle around. And by no means do I think that these are biblical. I just want to put that out there. This is not like one of these marketing influencer, this is the eight ways to do it, but these are kind of what I'm starting to revolve around. One is explainability, like how can, where'd you get this from? What's the sourcing? Uh, how'd you create this? Where, where'd the result come from? What algorithms are being used here to get to this point? Um, does it account for privacy and human rights, the ethical AI implementation? Are we respecting other people? Are we making sure that we're uh, avoiding biases? which is the third thing. I mean, obviously biases are, every one of us has them. Some of us don't like to see them when they're exposed. Sometimes the AI exposes them by accident. Um, but you know, this is kind of the importance of deploying a mature model that's kind of been vetted as much as possible to get rid of these biases. And also that includes access, right? And I think that gets to that education issue. Does everybody that should have access to this tool, can they access to it? How, can they access it? Can we provide that kind of access? Number four, transparency. Really, really critical, right? Am I using AI? Is this article created with AI? Am I building this image with AI? That kind of thing. If asked, we should definitely provide that information. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think everybody's going to be using it soon enough, but uh, it does seem to be an important issue. Um, fair competition in markets is going to be a huge issue. Uh, and I think that some companies are going to use AI to absolutely kick some ass. I see individuals using AI to do better in stock markets already. Um, there's an individual use of AI to win lotteries now and the probability of what the numbers are going to be. These are all issues that, you know, can our tool be used to create unfair competition if it's deployed in a way that's not healthy or the way we use this content? I know most marketers won't deal with that issue, but I do think some people will. Um, finally, um, do we trust the uh, company? Is it? A, are we building this out in a trustworthy manner? Um, I think that gets back to all the other things, but I think providing uh, a guarantee and a commitment to excellence and a commitment to resolve any issues created by the tool is really important. People want to feel like you're behind them, right? And yeah. that includes the employees. You have to get behind them. If this thing creates a massive error, what are you going to do? Um, and so I think, you know, it's one thing to, to provide a car. It's another thing to be behind the safety and the equipment features that make sure that that car is safe to use. And so when we use AI, we have to guarantee that it's safe in whatever way uh, from a privacy standpoint. And that's incumbent on executives. And if executives aren't willing to stand by their product and uh, put their company brand behind it, that's a huge issue. And then finally, is it secure? Can it be hacked? Can it be exploited? And that is part of anything digital these days. So that, that's kind of like my seven big meat half 
baked ideas around creating ethical AI policy. I, I definitely would love to hear what you think. Yeah, I would. I would agree with every one of those, and I think um, you know there's a couple of interesting things. Is that I was listen as I was listening to those, um, I I had two thoughts. One is that. Um, these apply to anyone who is building AI tools. Um, you know, so whether those are the technology companies building AI tools or any of the corporations who are going to build their own tools in-house that are proprietary, right, to apply these kinds of rules or guardrails. Um, but they apply equally to companies who are buying AI tools. And it is sent, you know, this list of seven, um, you know, t items creates a essentially a framework for vetting vendors right because right now a lot of what you're buying from AI companies is black box you know that's true certainly with open AI right, um, right. they explicitly joyfully closed up any of the um, you know kind of the um, sort of transparency around what data, how was the model trained, how, you know, what kind of reinforcement learning was used, et cetera, et cetera. They're basically saying that's our IP now, thank you, Microsoft. Um, you know, that a company that, you know, a year ago was an open research lab is now a multi-billion dollar private for-profit company. Um, and there are a lot of implications and ramifications for that, but as a user of a tool set that's powered by GPT 3.5 or 4, or ChatGPT itself, you need to ask the questions of what do we know about this data set? What do we know about the biases that are baked into that data set? What do we know about how our customer data, if we use it to fine tune a model, will be integrated into that data set, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, I, you know, that was the first point was this sort of equally valuable whether you're building or buying. Um, I think the, the other thing that um, occurred to me I've forgotten, so uh, so I'm gonna probably not 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 share this wisdom Too right funny. now. But, but I did well, I did have a second point, but I think um, you know I think that it's oh I know what it was is uh, well actually, actually two things. Number one, uh, we've seen this before, right? You know, you and I at least have been around long enough. We've seen you know whether it's you know kind of network computer usage policies or social media policies um, right. and. What you found in the early days was a lot of thou shalt not, right? Which would cause all of the employees, let's say in an organization, to be scared shitless of going on social media and doing the wrong thing because you might be reprimanded, you could even potentially be um, dismissed, right? Fired. Um, and there ha I suppose there has to be some element of that. That's the stick, right? Um, but over time, organizations learned that if you wanted to make the most of the best things that your employees can do on social, for example, advocate for your brand, you had to also, also provide the carrot, right? Um, so that we needed to give guidelines more so than restrictive policies. And maybe we're not there yet with generative AI, but I do think that ultimately there needs to be a balance between what is not allowable and what is permissible within a set of guardrails. Um, and then obviously you've got to make sure you're communicating all of this very clearly to the employees. Employees, right? A three-page document that goes out that gets a signature in the new employee.
employees packet is not going to cut it, right? So you need to actually make sure people are, are, are getting brought up to speed on the technology, on your company stance towards it, your policies, your guardrails, um, your philosophy, your ethical stance as an organization so that they can understand how their own stance and then their usage in turn um, actually align with what your organization is trying to do with the technology. I think that's a great transition to the no-brainer. Uh, or actually, maybe it is the brainer. I'm not sure. Hold on a second. Uh, is it a brainer? I think Jeff's out of brains at this point. Of course, now I'm talking about myself in the third person. We know I'm out of brains. Uh, no, it's the brainer, uh, which is when you're building these things, and I think you kind of segued it perfectly, actually, again, is that you know I think for me, one of the things I'm thinking about with this policy is how are people actually using it in the company to you know, actually produce meaningful outcomes for folks. And, and with that in mind, it's like, how do you involve actual people using AI to create a policy that's effective for the organization so people don't feel you know, that they're handcuffed and that they can't use it, right? Like if I can't communicate my ideas well, or I have like a jumbled bunch of thoughts and I want some sort of order put to the chaos in my head, you know, this is a really good use of the tool. Um, and so that could be very helpful. Uh, and so with that in mind, really try to understand where people are using the, this and how it can be very effective. Um, and so with that, I'll transition to you, my friend, for the no-brainer. For the no-brainer, which actually is an interesting segue if you're talking about involving or understanding at least the people inside your organization. I think in a lot of ways this speaks to understanding the people outside your organization and how they're using the technology. And um, I think what I'm going to recommend today is there, there was a report that came out a week or two ago, perhaps, uh, from Dentsu, the big Japanese agency holding company. I'm sure many marketers know them. Um, from uh, Dentsu Consumer Navigator, it was a generative AI 2023 report. Um, the link is really, really onerous. Um, so we will drop that link in the show notes. You can get those at nobrainerpodcast.com. Um, but it was it's interesting because it is a study of consumer awareness and attitudes towards generative AI. And there are a few eye-opening things. I'm not going to share every every stat from it. Um, but, um, you know, for those of us that live in the bubble where it seems like all anybody talks about is generative AI, it's a good, it's a good um, sort of reality check. Um, so they found that generative AI awareness was generally high, um, but among their respondents, only 27% had actually used Used it right. Compare that to the fact that probably a hundred percent of our listeners or a hundred percent of our LinkedIn networks, we were all over it. But when you look at right. our general consumer population, it's only twenty-seven percent. Um, that said, they found four out of five believe that AI is the future, but only two out of five were excited about that future. And they had a whole range of um, sort of opportunities that they see, as well as risks and concerns that, that worry them. I'm not going to go through them all, um, but that's certainly worth paying attention to, understanding what your own consumer might be concerned about, because that should inform your brand stance towards using these technologies to engage those consumers. Right, and I thought that there were two very specific findings that I thought were really interesting with shockingly high numbers. Um, one was that 77% of respondents agreed that brands should ensure that existing biases and systems of inequity are not propagated by the AI systems they use. Right, and that goes to a lot of what we've been speaking about. Um, 
And then the second thing was that 70% believe that brands should disclose when they're using AI. Uh, and again, that goes to some of the things we're speaking about. So these are just some of the findings. There's a, you know, a dozen plus more. Uh, it's really meaningful. It's through the lens of consumer advertising. Uh, so it's well worth reading. And again, we'll drop that link in the show notes at nobrainerpodcast.com. And that is the no-brainer for the episode. We're going to wrap this thing under an hour, my friend. So with that, I'm going to get us out, keep the good times rolling. Please definitely, definitely drop suggestions. You can see we like them. If you want us to pick up Ethical AI again, do it. Of course, we ask that you subscribe. Hit the like button. Definitely subscribe on YouTube. Subscribe on iTunes or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. And with that, thanks so much for having uh, us on your audio device or your computer screen. And Greg, thanks for partnering with me on this. As always, it's always fun. You bet, my friend. Thank you, everybody. Look forward to uh, chatting with you next time. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.